Hi, this is Jean-Pierre Mobasser with the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, and I want to invite everybody to attend our annual forum that will be on October 29th through the 31st. And uh, you can go to the ESMIS website, which is www.esmis.org, which is S-M-I-S-S.org, uh, to register. And there is a, uh, you can see the program on the website for the meeting and see that the times are scheduled so that it's compatible with our daily routine of surgery and clinic. Hope to see you there. Thank you. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by a friend, a colleague, and someone I've worked with in the past. His name is Ray Oktavec. And this opens up a whole new area that JP and I have wanted to get into um, since the podcast started, which is, you know, surgeons, doctors, we're surrounded by folks on the other side of medicine that are in the sales business, if you want to call it that. But they're not just salesmen. They actually are saleswomen. They provide resources for us to give better care to patients, whether they be pharmaceutical drugs or devices. And Ray is a very special, a charismatic individual. He has been in the medical device and pharmaceutical industry for over 20 years. Ray has a book called Improving Your Game, How to Succeed in Medical Device Sales, which I've read and I love, along with John Spranger. Ray got his start at Abbott Labs and then worked for Nuvasiv, later for Johnson & Johnson, uh, Biederman Motech, and now he's with a startup company called TrackX. So welcome to the podcast, Ray. Yeah, thank you, Mike. It's uh, it's a great honor to be here. Um, looking forward to speaking with you guys today. Great, great, great. Now, I want to start with something because, you know, it's so classically uh, trite that this concept of like the pharma rep or medical device rep, you see it in the movies, right? It's like, okay, the doctors are there and then these people bring them lunch. And it seems like it's such a I want to say asymmetric relationship. I, I certainly have viewed it more as like a symbiotic situation where you guys provide services for us and, and a lot of infrastructure, I should say, for the hospital, right? Can you tell us about your perspective on this? Because in your book, you really touch on those points. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, you know, I think th- to your point, there are very uh, different reps and different skill sets along those reps. But at the end of the day, a great medical device rep brings value to you, the surgeon, but also your entire hospital facility. So how they're interacting um, through the patient care continuum, right? A lot of times these medical device reps don't even get an opportunity to meet the patient. However, they are working on the front end of this patient uh, continuum all the way through the operating room and to make sure there's success post-op. And I think... a great rep can identify the value that they can bring at each individual level here. A lot of times it's preparing for the case. It's making sure everything that that surgeon needs and wants 
and doesn't even know that he wants is available for them in that room um, by, by the time surgery starts. You know, and, and I, I think understanding the surgeon's style and, and um, the way that he executes uh, his surgery and runs his room is a critical part of that success. And that's something that you really don't teach or, or learn in the classroom at any of these companies, you know, when you're doing sales training. This is something that you really get uh, a lot of this input from the surgeon and the nurses and the support staff, whether it's fellows, residents, PAs neurophysiologists in the room will start to tell you and clue you in on these things that the surgeon likes and does and, and can prepare you to really uh, execute at a very high level from a medical device rep standpoint. Well, let me tell you, Ray, as a uh, resident in training myself, we have a lot of the same tips and a lot of the same requirements uh, on our end too. When we go into a room with one of our new attendings, we'll all ask the senior guys, oh gosh, how does he do this? What does he like for that? What are, what are this attendant's preferences? So I can definitely relate to that. Um, but when you, when you talk about learning for the job and preparing for the job and your sales training, I've always been very curious uh, about the background of most people who go into your field and become reps like you. Um, as you say, oftentimes, depending on what company you're with, you may never meet patients, but many of the device company reps for our DBSD brain stimulation um, devices come see the patient before and after surgery and help them manage their device. Obviously, folks in uh, spine instrumentation companies are mostly in the operating room helping the uh, scrub tech or scrub nurses get the system set up for the surgeon. And all of this requires such a complex understanding of the mechanics of the device, the anatomy involved. I, I just wonder, what is the background typically business and sales? Do folks come into it with a background in the sciences of biological or physical sciences? Or, or is there even any pattern to it? Yes, yeah, so it's a great question, JP. Um, I would tell you typically two areas of, of background help initially getting into a medical device sales job. And, and one of those would be having some type of clinical background, whether this be a former nurse, uh, technician, someone that understands the hospital um, and the procedures the techniques and the surgeons that they're going to be calling on, that, per that person can have an advantage, I think, going into a, uh, if they were going into a job interview. The other person would be someone with a sales background, someone who understands sales, customer care, uh, in, in the service aspect part of this business. You know, the, the, the job of selling a surgeon is already done when they're buying your product in, in, in medical devices. They've, they've, they've booked that deep brain, brain stimulator or this surgery next week with you, that the sale is done at that point. Um, but the back half of the, of the job is not. And, you know, that's really where you're going to become a repeat sales person is if you can do that back half of the job. So the sales aspect is absolutely important, but I think being able to find someone with a sales background that can take something that's fairly complex and describe it and make it sound easy, you know, and, and, and that's the type of person you look for with that sales background is someone that can really break things down into very understandable, digestible uh, terms because the, the devices and the products being sold today um, have many different benefits and features and how they complement and work in one surgeon's hands may be different than the others and understanding that and being able to, to really align that with the surgeon becomes very important. 
Now, Ray, one area I've been very impressed with you is that my OR is a very complicated environment. I always tell the residents and fellows it's like an ecosystem because the primary issue is trying to get a surgery done safely and the patient is the center of everything. The surgeon is like the conductor or captain of the ship. And it's a tense environment because in neurosurgery, anything can go wrong. And if you don't maintain a high level of tone, I, I tell patients, it's not like Gray's Anatomy, trust me. Like even the simplest neurosurgery procedure can be an absolute phenomenal disaster for the patient. And even for the guys who have high sphincter tone like me, you still get problems, right? So here I come into the OR and as you know, right, the reps to me are the last person that I'm gonna deal with in terms of niceties, right? I'm gonna deal with the patient, the residents, the nurses, the anesthesiologists, the techs, the radiology techs, all those people. And so the environment's a little bit hostile, threatening, intimidating. Actually, I like it that way. I don't want people in, because there is this thing with people in sales, like you're, you're nice to them. They, they want more of your time. Then they start talking at the scrub sink. And it's like, look, I don't, I don't really want to talk to you. I'm busy focusing on a patient, right? So how do you handle that? I've, I've never seen anybody handle it better than you how you know how to time the discussion. And it's not like awkward. It's not like you're chewing up time or taking away from the focus on the patient. How do you do that? Yeah, Mike. So I think, you know, there's there's a little bit of that emotional intelligence in there that um, goes a long way. It's it's something that you you learn and, and can sharpen with that EQ. But um, I think when it comes to the surgery and, and being in that room, uh, the rep should be the constant. The rep should be the thing in the back of your head that you know is he's got everything you need and it's buttoned up and that's sealed. Um, if I need to talk to the doctor, or I need to have a conversation and speak to him. It's because I want to provide value for that patient in that case. And what I have to say will be pertinent uh, to how things are going to move forward the rest of the day. If I don't have something that I know the surgeon might think is on that back table or I, I think he wants and it's not available, that's the time where I say, hey, this is what I have today. This is what we're going to do. I can start looking for a plan C or D if if you think we're going to need that today or here's what we have. And, and a lot of times the surgeon appreciates the uh, honesty uh, up front, but they also need to, to know that when you're finding them or hunting them down at the scrub sink or doing anything around that, th these surgeries, to your point, are, can go can change uh, very quickly and where they're uh, headed but you need to be able to deliver value. If, if my conversation with the doctor is about the Dolphins game on Sunday uh, at the scrub sink, I'm wasting his time and I'm not doing a justice to that room or that patient. So uh, that, that's where that emotional intelligence, I think, comes in. And you just you have to know I've got to be I'm here to work and I'm delivering value. And that's what it boils down to. Well, that's so interesting to think about the emotional IQ, as you say, and the social grace that it takes to interact with surgeons in such a tense environment, um, even on a normal day, but particularly if, you know, God forbid something should go wrong with the case. I wonder over the course of the past year and the, the preceding months here, how have things changed with this new healthcare environment we're shifting into since the shutdown, since the nationwide and, and global pandemic with coronavirus? I imagine that like every other field and every other department in the hospital, there's been some push to have uh, fewer personnel uh, within the hospital. And, and that could cut down on that in-person direct interaction you have with, with the team and the surgeons you typically work with. 
How have things changed from the rep perspective in the past few months? Yeah, great question too. Um, you know, they, they've changed and they've trained drastically and it's drastic at each facility because what we're finding out there is each facility has different um, rules or policies they're implementing. Some facility has a rule one day and the next day they have a flood of new COVID patients and they have a whole new set of rules. And so with rules um, and or, or policies in place uh, have definitely challenged uh, the way the rep typically would come in the day before and maybe drop off the trays or, or, or prepare for the, the surgery the day before now uh, requires preparation as far out as possible. As soon as you um, know that you have a surgery or a case or, or something happening at that hospital, um, you need to address it immediately. And you and prior uh, to COVID in, in this time, I would say that you know, you, you had a standard routine that the hospital, you know, allowed you to come in the day before and, and do this work. So that has absolutely changed. I think the way that um, things are being communicated in the OR, there's hospitals in this country that are not allowing reps in the OR any longer and against the will of the doctors. And they just don't want the extra body in the hospital and, and guys are sitting out in their car or, you know, uh, waiting for a phone call from the nurse or a FaceTime from the nurse in order to convey messages where something is in the hospital, where things are. So so we've seen things definitely change and happen. Um, and I think we have, as we as we kind of look into the future and, and what, what we have there, we have a lot coming down uh, the pike as it relates to technology, I think, to aid this too. And, and we can talk more about that later. But uh, technology will play a big part in, in how the rep interacts, I think, in that OR and, and actually physically present or you know, maybe uh, virtually present as as time uh, evolves. Well, you know, it's interesting, Ray. I, I like how you're bringing all these important topics up. So much happens in the back, uh, in the backstage, and I, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about how difficult it is to be a neurosurgeon, how focused you have to be. And, and I often think about how I show up in the OR every day. Of course, I live in Miami, so it's easy to have equipment, and there's no snow or. I mean, with hurricanes, but nobody's operating near a hurricane, but like how you get equipment to the hospital in time for a 730 OR start sterilized in uh, Wisconsin in the middle of a blizzard. And I think about that and I think about the the calls at night, like it's frequent uh, just last weekend. It's like, I need equipment now. Uh, it's it's 1.30 in the morning. This patient is paralyzed. And then, you know, my rep or whatever has to come into the hospital, at, you know, at midnight, just like we do, right? It's it's very easy to take it lightly. And I think about, uh, I was reading a book about this guy named Montgomery Meggs, who was a, uh, a civil engineer, and he was the quartermaster for the Union Army. And people say, well, go fight a war. I mean, you know, how do you get the, the, the tents, the food, the supplies, the electricity there? And the quartermaster has to do that. And you guys are like the the equivalent of that in a way for what we do. So along those lines, I know you were a former football player, a real athlete at the collegiate level, how how does a, a, a rep, I would call you guys reps, prepare themselves emotionally, psychologically, physically for those incredibly long hours, the standing around in the OR waiting for stuff when cases are delayed or, or just for your case to go? How do you guys mentally prepare and psych up or, or physically prepare? Mike, so it's ironic you used the uh, or, or mentioned the, the football uh, analogy. You know, the, the book "Improving Your Game" is a lot of parallels to what I learned in athletics from a work ethic, from a teamwork, um, and from a preparation standpoint. That 
the analogy I use in the book, and it, and it absolutely applies to the question you have right there, is um, we played a game of football on Saturdays that was 60 minutes long. And I played defense, so I played about 30 minutes. But I prepared on Sunday for six days until that day came for my 30 minutes of play. I put hours and hours of time into that week in game planning and strategizing and all the way down to the tactics that we were going to take to, to play that 30 minutes of my field time. And the same thing absolutely applies in medical devices and um, in the OR. If, you know, if I'm going to make a sales call to a surgeon, do I want to just walk into his office and wing it? And it's something I do every day and every year, or do I practice? Do I read up on the latest studies? Do I understand the environment I'm walking into? Do I understand the goals and the objectives? Uh, and, the, and I say goals and objectives of the surgeon, meaning what's his bigger view and what's his bigger passion in, in his space that he's, he's focusing on? Is he a deformity guy? Is he an MIS guy? What, you know, you, you prepare and you do all these little things um, all week long, all month long, all year long, just like you do in athletics and training and, and preparing for that play. When all of a sudden the ball is thrown your way, you can make a play on it. And the OR is the same way. Um, a case gets delayed. It gives you time to rethink uh, everything that you have there, how you're going to do that. What are you planning and scheduling for the, and, and using that time for the rest of your day, for the, tomorrow's day, um, following up in a day or two ahead of that? You know, all this time, although we get stuck sitting in the, in the, in the lounge uh, for hours, it seems at time, but there's great utility that we can use to prepare and um, really uh strategize on how we're going to move forward with this, uh, with this case or this day. And, you know, to your point about, you know, Wisconsin and these guys doing snowstorms and doing this stuff, these reps um, know what the doctors use and like, and they fight very hard for, for the fact to be able to have that inventory on hand and consigned to their hospitals. That's the side of the, the business that the, I don't think the surgeons always see and understand, but you know, industry wants a certain amount of turns on implants and instruments. And, you know, there's a dollars and cents and algorithms that are done at a very high level. And um, as a rep, you fight very hard to keep what you need at your hospital, knowing your surgeon wants it. And even if he only uses it once a month or once a quarter, knowing that you may have that, that snowstorm or that midnight call um, and you show up and you're there and you can but not only bail the surgeon out, but you're doing it for the patient. Ultimately, you know, that patient wins when all the equipment and everything you need is there. And, you know, that's the back end of the business. You know, the, these cases and these trays are extremely expensive. They come with hundreds of hundreds of implants and, and sizes. And, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you just need four screws, but you need the right four screws. And so, um, you know, long-winded answer there uh, to two different questions. But uh, I think the plan and the strategy and the tactics that we take uh, typically are thought out as, in a good rep uh, months and in, in, in weeks in advance of how everything's going to play out for that moment when you get the chance, you know, to get on the field and make your play. Wow. I, I love, I love how you talk about the preparation and the amount of thought and discipline that goes into preparing for the one event. Um, similarly, I always try to bring the perspective of the trainee to these conversations. And, you know, I, I'm early in my own residency. I still very well remember being a medical student, Dr. Wang's OR in Miami. And I remember how much I learned and always tried to learn from 
the device reps in each case, because aside from Dr. Wang, who, as he said, is focused on the case and, and has other things to worry about, who better to learn about the system from than the guy who is the expert in the system. So I wonder if you could speak to the junior residents listening to the show about how, how can they best utilize the rep in the room? Uh, what are the best ways to maybe approach and, and get to know the rep? And, and in what ways can you add to our education and help us look good for our attendings? Yeah, great question, JP. So I'm going to answer it two ways. You alluded to earlier, like how industry trains us uh, as, as sales representatives in the field. And then also, um, you know, taking it a little bit further than just the product itself and the training and the, the, the real, the genuine interaction that can happen between a physician and maybe the rep and industry. I think both of those points I would like to answer there. Um, first, Industry training for a rep has changed drastically uh, in, in the 20 years that I've been in this business. I remember going back to Johnson & Johnson and when I started there and um, the job was to sell um, minimally invasive uh, surgical products. And in doing so, it's more than understanding that we offer a 6.0 by 45 screw or that the dimensions is this, the height is this, the width is this, this is what's in the tray. Selling a minimally invasive procedure or technique is complex. And one of the first things uh, I was able to do there was we decided to change the training from being very uh, product centric and changed it and aligned it almost overnight to how we train surgeons. Uh, we started training reps because it was important for the, the rep to understand exactly what was going on and what the next step was in that procedure. It was important for the rep to have to put in percutaneous screws, for example, and understand what it meant when the K wire would advance forward and potentially could have a, a negative consequence, right? And, and they could see and feel and understand that. And when we, we started to train the reps differently, and now it's just, I would say, you know, 10 years later, this is pretty standard across the industry is to train reps in a similar uh, fashion that aligns very similar to how you train the surgeon on your product. Um, the rep gets additional product training, but um, most reps can do that procedure or that technique within their own space on a cadaver now and or on a sawbone or, or, and, and be able to replicate that. So the second part of that question, JP, is it relates to um, training and education for the residents and fellows. Um, I think this becomes very important and super important as you go through your training that you continue to make those relationships uh, with specific key industry folks. Um, I can tell you that many times I've been able to be a resource to a surgeon who is new in practice and has is about to do a procedure that he hasn't done since fellowship or he hasn't... Uh, hasn't had an opportunity to play with the system or the set that he's going to need to do the proper surgery here. And being able to reach out to industry and be able to get immediate training in the field that you need, I think becomes very critical. And industry is here for the fellows and residents to train them and give them the additional training that they need, but um, also, you know, allows them to, uh, align and continue to stay educated and up to breath with the latest technologies. Great. Well, Ray, you know, to respect everyone's time, I think as we wrap up today's conversation, thinking about how 
device reps get trained and, and how things have changed in the past year. Looking forward, you know, Dr. Wang and I always wax philosophic about where the field of neurosurgery is going, where the field of spine surgery is going. Um, but, you know, we have a surgeon's perspective. We have a clinician's perspective. Looking from your side, from the industry side of things, where do you see neurosurgery? Where do you see uh, medical devices going in the next years, decades? Lay it out for us. Yeah, sure. So there, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, I absolutely think that the medical device industry and even, you know, as, as it relates to the specialty of neurosurgery and, and spine surgery, um, we're on a big uh, collision crash course for integrating technology into what we do and going even further than where we've where we are today, I think we will start to see the emergence of smart implants in, into this space. Uh, we've started to see uh, a couple companies coming out with some things and at least R&Ding some of these things and working with the FDA. But, you know, getting implants that are is just as simple as maybe having a temperature gauge on them where we could assess a, uh, a fusion, whether you know, with, with a, uh, a temperature, uh, ideal temperature spacing that we have fusion occurring or we have infection occurring in that disk space and being able to communicate that and get that information real time, um, I think is, is something that we are going to see. That That's just, I think, a simple example of, of where we're going on some of that um, smart implant technology. We're also going to see, I think, a, a real big uh, conversion of these healthcare giants partnering with consumer tech companies. You know, we, we are all familiar with the wearables and, and the, these watches and all these things. But when we really can start to um, really start to connect these wearables with our implants or even take these technologies and start to integrate them earlier into the patient's uh, care continuum before surgery, to follow them through surgery and after surgery, the type of data and information we're going to be receiving uh, through this will be incredible. I think, you know, we, we talk about 3D printing and augmented reality and mixed reality and, and where these things are all going and uh, the, the data that's going to come out of all of these type of projects are going to be probably as valuable or more valuable than the actual implants themselves um, from an industry standpoint as we look forward you know, five, 10, 15 years. And, and that's really going to be the push, I think, for these uh, healthcare companies are to become healthcare technology companies and how they align themselves. I just, I, I honestly believe that, you know, understanding um, the intricacies of the individual patient will be, will be king first, you know, looking at this as one big, you know, implant tray of uh, implants that we actually have one implant for this patient that's going to give us a lot of biofeedback and, and information to allow us to to help care for this patient for the future. Wow, what a fascinating uh, prospect that is. And I, I can't wait to see it unfold, hopefully over the course of my career. Uh, well, Ray, thank you on uh, behalf of Dr. Wang and our audience for coming on the show and sharing with us, uh, like I said, a novel perspective for our listeners uh, coming from the side of industry in the operating room with neurosurgery. Uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Ray. Yeah, thank you guys both. This has been great. I really enjoyed it.
Take a second to think about how you got to where you are today. It was by others investing in your education, and now you can pay it forward. It's as simple as using your Amazon account that we all have and we all love. Please consider contributing to the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation via Amazon Smile. If you have any questions regarding signing up, uh, email us at the neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com.